So, hey, uh, so if you're visiting, uh, we're glad you're here. And let me kind of catch you up to speed on where we're at and for the rest of you as well. The, uh, so the series that we were in this last four weeks was called Inoculated, and we talked about how there's the potential for this thing called the gospel, which in a nutshell is all of human history is God is working out his plan to reconnect humanity back to him through Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. But that isn't just one event. That's throughout all of human history and through our lifetime. That's the gospel. We talked about how it's possible to have a concept of the gospel that may save you but not transform you. And we use the analogy, it's like when you put a coin into a machine and it doesn't drop, that coin gets stuck. That means that it won't do what it's supposed to do. The machine won't produce what it's supposed to produce. The same thing is true of our faith, where sometimes it's like the gospel gets in us, but it doesn't drop into our soul, and therefore it doesn't change anything about our lives. And so we talked about that to kind of lay the foundation for this series, which is called The Gospel Shapes, which means if the gospel's true, which we believe it is, and we're living in the midst of it, and it's supposed to actually change us and transform us. When it actually drops into our soul, guess what happens? It shapes everything. It shapes the way we think, the way we act, the way we, we talk, the decisions we make, everything. It touches every aspect of our lives. And so the series that we're now going to go into will last anywhere from, we don't know yet, four to six months because the gospel touches a lot of stuff. We're going to touch on a number of different things of, in terms of how does this understanding of what the Bible says and how the gospel shapes our lives, how does it impact the way we live in light of a number of different kind of topics and issues that we're going to walk through through this series. But to lay the foundation even further, we're going to, today we're going to actually revisit a little bit of what we did last week in laying a foundation for this whole series because we did kind of a, a, a surface-level dive into this thing called obedience. And this week we want to go a little bit deeper into that, and we're going to, actually there will be some passages that we're familiar from last week that we're going to talk a little bit about because obedience is the one characteristic, the one key in our following Jesus that is always overlooked. We, we downplay the significance of our obedience because when I say the word obedience, this is usually, it's a negative term, right? It means I have to do something that I don't want to do, and it means that, or it means I'm doing something wrong that I have to change. And so we don't like to hear about it, but that's because we don't understand what obedience is all about. And so the way it's set up is that God invites us into this beautiful relationship, but in the relationship that he has with us, it isn't some like, it's in a, it's in a requirement so we'll be saved. It is the, the covenant that we make with God that we understand God knows what's best in my life. Therefore, I'm going to let him call the shots. I mean, that's why we use the term Jesus being the Lord of my life. Well, he's in charge. So even though I might disagree with God, which I know many of us do, we do it in our actions and our behavior. But if I disagree, I still, I'll say, okay, God, I trust that you know what's best. So that's part of it, and the reason I want to take time on this is I think I've seen it so many times in the lives of people that we struggle with things like apathy, and we can't figure out why. It's because I'm convinced that we've, over, we've stepped over this thing called obedience and thought, ah, oh, it has no significance in my life. I've seen people get mad at God and blame him for all kinds of things, and the core issue is they're not following Jesus and not obeying him. It's not that it changes all of our problems, but so, this is so foundational that we often take it for granted that actually doing what God wants us to do in our life is actually something that can actually have impact on the way we live our lives. So to kind of set this up, I'm, I'm going to go classic on you because I know I'm old now and this was one of my favorite movies growing up. But So we want to turn to the great theologian, Mr. Miyagi, because he has lots to say about our lives. Okay? So I want you to understand, we're going to watch a little clip where he actually, for the first time, Daniel LaRusso understands what it's going to mean to actually learn karate from him. But I want you to listen to the words he says. He uses the term, I want to make a sacred pact with you. 
which is similar to the way that God sets things up for us in terms of our relationship and our own obedience. So why don't you, let's take a look at this clip together. Oh, Mr. Miyagi, I forgot to give this back to you last night. Uh, you keep. Oh, thanks a lot. So, ready? Well, yeah, I guess so. And your son must talk. Walk on the road. Hmm? Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Here, karate, same thing. Either you karate do yes, or karate do no. You karate do guess so, just like grip. Understand? Yeah, I understand. Now ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Yes. Let's make sacred pact. I promise teach karate, that my part. You promise learn. I say you do, no question, that your part. Deal? Steal. Yes. First wash all the car, then wax. Wax. Wait, why do I have to wash all the car? Remember, deal. No question. Yeah, but I... Right. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out the mouth. Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. Very important. Wax on, wax off. Wax on. Wax off. Hey, where these cars come from? Wax on. Detroit! Wax off. So I, I want to play that. There's a couple reasons, but what really sticks out is what, what Mr. Miyagi's actually asking Daniel is, do you trust me? That's what he's asking. When he's saying, you do as I say without question, he's saying, do you trust me? And of course, he hands him a sponge right out of the gate, so it's kind of like, well, what am I trusting you for? But I think that that's the way that God relates to us. He's saying, do you trust me that although... Uh, it doesn't look like this is for your best in, in your best interest or what your life should look like. That Do you trust me that I know what I'm doing? Because that's the question that comes to all of us. Do we actually trust God that he knows what he's doing? Because when, when we do that, we understand. See, see the, even the context of that clip, I know I'm not, I'm not going to overanalyze it, but understand this. Why, if you even don't even know the movie, I'll tell you the context. So Daniel LaRusso meets Mr. Miyagi, and he gets to know him for one reason. He wants to learn karate because he's getting his butt kicked. That's the whole concept, right? So Pastor John just said, but it's okay, all right? God forgives me. I'm under grace. But I want you to understand, so his, his context of relationship was to gain something from Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi wants relationship and wants to teach Jan Daniel something. And so what he's saying is, I know you want to learn karate, but there's something more important than karate. It's that you trust me. And the reason that's important is if, if you're like me, almost all of us, we come to Christ in a moment where we need something from him. That's out of desperation of our heart. We give our life to Jesus. And really what we're doing is we're giving our life for G to Jesus for one reason, that he'll fulfill that need in our lives. But eventually he may or he may not fulfill that need, but you know what he wants more than just fulfilling the needs in your life? He wants relationship where you trust him. And that's why obedience is so important because obedience shows I trust you more than I trust me. 
So with that understanding this morning, this is kind of the foundation. Again, this is so important. We can't skip this and just start going through a, a series of things of how the gospel shapes our lives unless we get this one down. So as I mentioned, they're gonna, we're going to mention some passages from last week, but there's four things I want to touch on that are really kind of keys from the Bible that demonstrate and help us to understand what obedience looks like. And I want to start with the first one is this. What are the origins of obedience? Why is this so important? Because this started way, way back at the beginning, which I've shared before about this passage, but I want to revisit it one more time. And that is that Adam and Eve made a decision in the third chapter of the Bible that you and I repeat every single day of our lives. They had a choice to make. And you don't have to be in the garden and you don't have to be tempted by the serpent, but you and I have to make the same decision every single day. And the decision is this, will I choose for myself what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, or will I let God do that for me because he's God? So let me read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Again, this is a review, but a reminder. This is where it all began. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So that's where it all starts. You know, and I forget, people get mad at Abney. Man, they really blew it. We would have done the same thing. But that decision starts to snowball this thing called sin in the world. And as you keep reading through the Bible, you start to see it just gets worse and worse and bigger challenge, a bigger issue for humanity. Because all of us keep making the same decision over and over and over again. I'll do it myself. I don't need God to tell me what to do. And that's what gets us into trouble. Because there's a misunderstanding of the nature of God when we, struggle to dis when we struggle with obedience. We don't trust him. We are not convinced that God loves us. That's why we disobey. Because if we were convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves me and God is good, then everything that he asks me to do is loving and good, therefore I'll do it. But if we question that, then we'll do our own thing. That's one of the biggest issues, that we're not convinced that God really loves us, therefore I, we don't trust him. If you're a parent, you get this. You understand that you love your kids, but sometimes they don't believe that you love them. Because why? Because you're putting too many limitations on them, too many restrictions, too many rules. Sound familiar? And that's true for all of us. And that starts with parent-kids relationship from when they're little. They're always pushing the boundaries. They're pushing the limits. Why? Because they're sinners just like us. They're cuter, but they're sinners just like us, right? And I know, and... and, and this is true when my, for my kids. Courtney was one that was always the first one to jump in passionately on anything in life. She was also the first one to step over boundaries, and she would tell you that. She was always the one pushing. She was the one that had us on our knees more than Jordan, okay? So, and she knows that, but this is the beauty of what happened with Courtney. Courtney's learned over her life that mom and dad actually do love her. Even though when she was younger, she obviously thought in her own mind, I know better. So I've told lots of stories about Courtney, but the one that stands out the most for me, the one that impacted me most as a father, is when she was about four years old. And we had a rule for Courtney, especially when Jordan came along. And Jordan was still an infant, and he was still in a stroller. But we told her, now that there's two of you, when we're in public, you better stay close to us. We'll keep an eye on you, and we'll try to hold your hand. But when we're in public, you stay close to us. And so that was kind of the understanding. 
except when you're at a fair at Ventura County Fairgrounds and there's thousands of people and you're eating food and there's lots of distractions when you're four years old. And we did that, and when we were getting up to leave this venue, all of us went one way, and Courtney wasn't paying attention. She went the exact opposite direction of all of us. And so she was convinced we went the other way. So she took off, and it took us about 10 seconds. 10 seconds is an eternity. And all of a sudden, it hit us. Where's Courtney? And so my brother-in-law and my sister were there, and we just scattered four different directions, and we're, I mean, just frantic. Where's Courtney? Where's Courtney? And probably a good 30 seconds to a minute, which seemed like an hour went by, and we could not find her. And so then finally, I left that area, and I turned out into kind of the, the midway area where all the rides are, and there, probably about 30 yards away, Courtney's standing there, this my little four-year-old looking up at two adults, strangers, talking to them. And I screamed, Courtney! And she turned around, she saw me, I started crying, she started crying, it's like in the movies, and we started running, and you know, and I almost ran over her, because I'm much bigger than she was, but I picked her up, and there's that moment where you just want to, you, you love her, but you want to smack her, you know what I'm talking about? But my love overpowered my smacking, and I just started sobbing, and I said, Courtney, we thought we lost you. Why did we set up a boundary to stay close to us? Because we don't want Courtney to have any fun? Because we're just controlling? Because that's the way we think of God. No, because we know something that she doesn't understand, that there's strangers and unsafe things that happen around her all the time that we're trying to protect her from. So we've created a boundary for her to live the safest life possible at that stage of her life. See, the same thing is true for God. God sets up parameters and he says, this is the way that you can flourish. This is the way you're to live life. And we think, oh no, God, you don't know. You don't know what truly makes me happy. You don't know what makes me content. You don't know what gives meaning in life. He's the author of life. He's the author of your life. And he knows better. And if we trust him, then obedience doesn't become a bad word. It becomes something that we want to do. Why? Because we know we're trusting in what is best for us, even though we don't understand it or see it or can explain it. So that's the first point we have to understand. The origin of this started at the beginning of time, and we all struggle with this, which leads to the second point, our struggle with obedience. We all struggle with it. The only person I know of in human history that was perfect was who? Jesus. But all of us struggle with being obedient. But here's the key about obedience that we have to understand. It is the one distinguishing factor between somebody who is a follower of Jesus and somebody who's not is that you and I are supposed to be, and here's, here's a loaded term, we're called to be holy. And the moment I say the word holy, everybody starts getting guilty or feeling shame. Why? Because I'm not perfect, perfect, and I'm not like God, and I'm not what I'm supposed to be. But that's a misunderstanding of what it means to be holy. God is holy, but God is not separate from us, is he? He is above us, he is beyond us, why he's God, but he's present, right? He's present through his spirit, he sent his son into the world. So holiness does not mean separateness, which we always think it is. Holiness means that we are distinctly different than the culture around us. God is distinctly different from humanity. And if he calls his people to be holy, what are we supposed to be? Distinctly different from the world around us. How are we distinctly different? We live by different guidelines. We live with different purpose. We live within boundaries where the world erases those and says, I'll do it myself. That's a, there's a distinct difference when somebody looks at a follower of Jesus. They say, oh, that's what it is. Now, that becomes sometimes a negative thing for people, but other times it's that longing to say they're living a life that I wish I could live, but that means I can't be my own God anymore. See, this is the struggle and the tension that we live in. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, says this, God says to his people, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
That's this covenant. So Mr. Miyagi said what? A sacred pact? God says a covenant. It says, listen, this is the thing that distinguishes you. We'll talk a little bit about what happens when you don't obey later. By the way, there is good news for that, just in case you didn't know. It's kind of reminders are, are next to me right now. But there's something else that's important because this is true for human history, this tension, this struggle. Because when we feel like there is no authority in our life and we feel like we can do what we want to do, there's something that happens. We start to look at the world through the lens of our own eyes and our own wisdom and our own discernment and we make decisions of what we think is best. They did this in the Old Testament. In in the book of Judges, before God granted kings to Israel because that's what they wanted because they wanted to be like everybody else, he actually gave them judges, but because they had felt like there was no authority over them, even though God was present, look at what it says. Multiple times it says this in Judges, both in chapter 17, chapter 21, and other places. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like the world we live in today? Yeah. Well, you have a term for that. It's called relativism, which means it doesn't matter what you think about me. It only matters what I want to do, and therefore, don't judge me because what's right for my, me, what's truth for tr- is true for me, and I have my own reality. That's doing what's right in my own eyes. How well has that worked for us? It hasn't worked well. That's the answer. It hasn't worked well. The challenge is when we start to adopt that philosophy from the culture and start to make it a part of the way we live our lives as followers of Jesus— that we, will, we do what's right in our own eyes. And it might even be with great intentions, and it might be with a good desire in our heart, but we haven't bothered to ask God, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live my life? What parameters have you set out? What context have you set out for me that this is how I'm supposed to live my life? Because this is the tension and the struggle that we live in. Now, I want to talk just for a few moments about three, three specific topics that we will address more in depth later in the series. But I, I want you to know, before I talk about this, there is no intent on my part to point the finger at anybody or to to cause condemnation or to heap shame on anybody. But I, this is just examples of how what happens when we, we move away from what God says we're do, supposed to do in our life and we start to make decisions based on what we think is right in our own eyes. So let's take up the talk, topic of sex in our culture. So in our culture now, the way we live in our culture now is that um, of being a virgin before you get married is not something that ra- it rarely happens anymore. In fact, in, in the culture today, it's interesting, there's been a shift. If you're a virgin when you get married, you're actually looked down upon because you're inexperienced and you don't know what you're doing. But in the Bible, God makes it very clear that a husband and a wife, when they get married, that's the context of sex. But in our culture, it's, we've, we've, wait, we've taken the boundary and we just erased it, and now it's normative. And now what's happened is that influence has made it into the church where that kind of, that kind of philosophy of sex has become normative in the church where we, we look at this reality and God is very clear throughout the scriptures and says, listen, I've created a beautiful thing called sex and I've given it to you and I've given you a context for it. And there's a reason I give you a context for it and it's best if it's placed in this context. But then we go, ah, eh, I don't know. I don't know if God really knows what he's talking about. I don't know if God knows what, what pleasure is for me. I don't know if God knows what happiness is for me. So, so I don't have to ab- abide by that and therefore I can do what I want to do, which is what? Doing what was right in my own eyes. Now, culturally, we've seen this has been destructive. This has been destructive to marriage, to family, to all kinds of things. And now that's part of what happens in the church. Now, again, I I don't say that to cast shade on anybody or on condemnation on anybody, but hear me. There's a reason God said this is the way it's supposed to be. Why? Because he's God. God created sex, and he created a context for it. Why? Because he loves people and he wants them to live the best life they can live. Let's take another one. It's a little quiet. Move on. The second one's not easier. 
sexuality. Let's talk about this reality. Now, before we talk about what I'm going to talk about, let me, let me make something clear, and we'll talk about this in this series. Within the context of the church, the place where somebody should navigate their sexuality is not in the world, it's in the church. And I say that to our church because if somebody's struggling with same-sex attraction, by the way, it is real. It is real. It's not just, ah, don't worry about it, it'll go away. No, it's a real reality for people. And if somebody is struggling with what's called gender dysphoria, which means the gender of my body doesn't seem to match the gender of my emotions and my heart and my mind, that's a reality. And somebody who's in that situation in the church should not be judged. They should be embraced. Read the New Testament and watch how Jesus did it. People who are struggling with sexual issues in their life were embraced by Jesus almost all the time when you read through the scriptures. And this is important for us because I say this with passion because I've seen, I've known people in our church struggling with this and they left and they went into the world because they felt judged. It's not just our church, but it's the church. The worst place possible to navigate your sexuality is in the culture of the world because there is no boundaries anymore. Now I say that, but let me also make clear this. God made it very clear what sexuality looks like in the context of following Jesus. It's a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. And why is that? There's a whole theology behind it, but I'll give you a snippet. It's because when, when it says in Genesis, God created man, he created male and female. And when, in Genesis 2, when they come together, they become one flesh. And it also is a demonstration of the unity and diversity of who God is. It's the nature and image of God is what male and female are together. And that's why, by nature, when you take male and male, female and female, you cannot reflect the image of God anymore. And you can't, it can't lead to, ultimately, one of the reasons God has placed humanity on the planet is human flourishing. And that is to flourish, to, to obviously, to reproduce, to live in a context where, in a family, you have, you have the complements of male and female together. You can't experience those things. And so God says, this is the way. But that doesn't deny the fact that somebody can struggle with that. And how do you help people navigate that? But I share that because, again, within the church, there's a shift. There's a shift where some people were literally, for 1,900 or 2,000 years, the church has held the position that marriage is between a man and a woman. And now in the last 20 years, there's been a shift to ignore all of church history and all of the church fathers, and all of the theology. All, why? Because the culture is saying, how bigoted. You're homophobic. Not true. You are if you don't love people who are dealing with that. But this is the context you understand. God created, this is the way it's supposed to work. Okay, well, third one, because this is one I see almost all the time. I see it all the time. Alcohol. So I shared this at our community group on Tuesday night. So alcohol is a really interesting thing. In my parents' generation... Nobody in the church drank. Nobody. If you did, you were a closet alcoholic and you didn't let anybody know. That was the way it worked. In my generation, lots of people would drink, but they would make sure that they drank only certain contexts and they would guard against anything that would ever lead them to being inebriated or drunk. And then you get past my generation and the generation now, two generations even past mine, in the church, it's not only okay to drink, it's fine to get drunk as long as you don't drive. That's what the government says. That's not what God says. God's pretty clear on it. In fact, Paul said it in Ephesians. He said, don't get drunk on wine, but what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would Paul say that? Because what he's saying is when you get drunk, you've now submitted yourself to substance and something other than God himself. And the only thing you submit to, the only person you submit to is who? The Holy Spirit himself. 
And the reason I bring that up is because, again, it's, it's this thing where it says, God, come on, what's wrong with getting a little tipsy? And by the way, any person I've ever met who says a little tipsy, their definition of tipsy is way off. <laughs> it's because you're submitting yourself to something that you think is going to bring you happiness and it's going to bring you fulfillment. And it always leads to a cycle where for a momentary high, just like any substance, the fall is huge. And the destructive power in your life is huge. And that's why, this is just for me, that's why for me and for Kim, in our, in our lives, there is, biblically, there's nothing wrong with drinking. Jesus drank wine, Paul drank wine, it's all in there, okay? But Kim and I don't drink. Because I've talked and I've worked with too many people in the churches I've pastored whose lives have been absolutely destroyed by alcohol. And for me to take a sip, even, even behind closed doors, and them to find out would be so destructive to their recovery process, why would I even do that? Now, hear me, it doesn't mean that you can't drink. It just means that God has set it up. Drink, enjoy wine. Enjoy what God has made and what God has created. But never submit yourself to a substance that takes over your life. So I share those three things again because this is the context where God says, listen, I've created these great things. I've created sex. I've created male and female. I've created alcohol. But there's a context for them. And if you live in my context you'll see why and you'll understand what your life's supposed to look like. Again, obedience to the way God wants it to be because he is God and he ultimately knows best. Third thing, another key to understanding the Bible and obedience is understanding the motivation behind obedience. So we talked about this last week, but I want to dive a little bit deeper. So Jesus says uh, uh, two words over and over and over again in the Gospels when people encounter him. He says, follow me. Those are loaded words, by the way, because uh, for non-Jews, Gentiles, like most of us, we don't understand, when a, but when a rabbi, especially in the first century, came to you and said, follow me, that was a profound statement. He was saying something to you of value. He was saying, you have the capacity in yourself to come and be like me. That was huge for a Jew to hear. So when Jesus says that to Peter, and he says it to the original 12, and you hear his stories, they, came, they, they thought, wow, okay, this guy sees something in me, and I need to follow him. And when they followed him, what, how did they follow him? It says they literally left their lives. Peter left the best catch of his life. Matthew walked away from his tax collector table. They just, they were all in, right? They followed him because they understood something about him that we have a tendency to miss. They were motivated, not like we were motivated, because they realized they could become like Jesus. They could live like Jesus. In fact, it's the same thing that John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He says, come follow me and be like me. And that's the standard. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to live a life like Jesus. It means to think and act to be like Jesus, that's, that's the goal, that's our model. In fact, this idea of obedience and being like Jesus is so ingrained in who we are, it's the very, embedded in the very mission of what we're supposed to be about. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to make disciples, and how do you make disciples? Teaching people to obey. That's what Jesus says, everything I've commanded you. It's that obedience thing. But here for a moment, let me talk about what is the true motivating, motivation for obedience. We talked a little bit about this last, last week. If it's compliance, if it's because we live in fear and we better obey, it'll never work. The law proved that. The law wasn't good enough to save anybody. The law wasn't good enough to transform anybody. But what transforms people is something called grace. And just like obedience, it's something we don't understand. So Paul writes this. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just let this settle in for a moment. God saves us by grace because there's things he has purposed for us to do in this life. He doesn't say, here's the laundry list of things to do to make sure that you're good enough for me. He says, I've created you for purpose, and the way you access that, access that purpose is grace comes and takes care of the sin issue in your life so you can be who I created you to be. Now, how does grace do that better than law? How does grace do that better than just compliance? Because grace is a gift that we get what we don't deserve. That God blesses us and chooses to love us and chooses to accept us, not because we've reached the standard that somehow, okay, now you're in. No, it's the opposite of that. And that's, that we have to let that settle in, that that's the motivating factor. See, mercy saves us from what we actually deserve to get, which is punishment. But grace saves us to what we definitely don't deserve to get. What is that? That's God's unconditional love and his acceptance in our life. But that motivates us. Why? Because now I realize that in my, my, my desire to follow Jesus and obey, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to blow it. Right? And when I blow it, what is God going to do? Because what Jesus did on the cross, he's going to forgive me. He's going to love me. He's going to accept me all over again. When that happens in your life, you are more motivated next time to do the right thing. Why? Because you realize even in trying and failing, God still covers you. God still loves you. God still accepts you. And this is one of the challenges for us to understand this reality. What does grace look like? Man, there's a great picture in the culture this week of what grace looks like. So this last week in Texas, most, most of you heard about the police officer went on trial for killing a man who she thought was an intruder in her apartment only to discover she was in his apartment, not hers, and went to trial and she got convicted of murder. And the sentence was 10 years. And so outside the courthouse, there was just this frenzy of, again, this reaction. Again, another African-American who was the, the guy who got shot, not getting justice in the legal system. But in the courtroom, there was a completely different reality unfolding. When the brother was up on the stand of the man who got killed in the sentencing phase and he was sharing, he extended forgiveness to this woman, this police officer. Now, he couldn't do anything as far as mercy side because that's up to the court. He couldn't suspend her 10-year sentence, but you know what he could offer her? Grace. Because he looked at the judge and tears in his eyes, and he said, can I hug her? And he got up from the stand, and he came down, and she came from the bench, and they ran and met, and he, she just hung on tight to him. Why? Because she was experiencing the one thing we long for in the moments of our brokenness. She was being accepted by the person she offended. He was embracing her like he would embrace one of his family members, like he would embrace his dead brother. He was embracing her, and in that moment, you can tell there's something so healing in her life, even though she's going to serve her 10 years. Why? Because that's grace. See, and the God, of, the God of the universe looks down on us because what Jesus has done on the cross, and in the moment of our greatest failure, what does he do? He embraces us. He forgives us. He accepts us. That's the motivation for obedience. That's the kind of God that's, if, if, if God can do that, then I can trust him with anything in my life. He can make up for my failures and my sin and my brokenness, then I will trust him with everything. Even if it doesn't make sense to me, he's still God and he still knows what's best for me. That's what has to motivate us. See, this idea of acceptance, you and I do 
things all the time because we don't think that we're good enough for God and we don't think that we're accepted by God and that isn't our responsibility. That's God's. In fact, God set out a beautiful example in the way that the Father relates to the Son when Jesus was on the planet. In Matthew chapter 3 is recorded Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, we don't have to go there, but I'll, I'll re- kind of rehearse the story for you. When, when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus. What was Jesus experiencing? The same thing we experienced today. He was experiencing the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Because, by the way, when Jesus lived on the planet, he lived as a human being. He was fully God and he was fully man, but he lived just like we live. So he's experiencing that. And then after that happens, this amazing thing happens. A voice from heaven says, and people heard it, which is the voice of the Father. He says this, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, why is that significant? Because up until that point, what's recorded in the Gospels, Jesus hasn't done one miracle yet. He hasn't healed one person yet. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't built a list of ministry and life Uh, like markers that says, check it off, check it off, I'm good enough, God accepts me. No, God says, this is my son, and who I'm well pleased. Why? Because he's my son. Not because he's performed or he's done his duty, it's because he's my son. Why is that significant? Because it's at that moment that this relationship between the father and son is demonstrated for humanity that Jesus trusts the father's will. That's why Jesus over and over says, what, I'm here to do what? The father's will, not mine. We know this is true because you fast forward through his ministry years and now he's just a moment before he goes to be arrested and goes to the cross. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he has a, he's in dialogue with the Father in intense prayer to the point where he's literally sweating blood and he says this, basically he says, God, he's saying to the Father, if there's any other way to accomplish the purpose that I'm here for, which is what? Is to die on the cross to what? To reconnect humanity back to God by paying for their sin. If there's any other way than me going through the suffering and the pain of what I'm about to go through, let's take that option. But then you remember what Jesus said? Not my will, but your will be done. How can Jesus say that? Because he trusts the Father. Even though he's about to go through pain and suffering and struggle, he trusts the Father has the best interest in, his, in mind for him and for the world. And there has to be moments when you and I are, are going through something and you're like scratching your head, God, this can't be the best. This can't be your will for my life. And so what do we do in that moment? We think, ah, I'm going to choose to do what's right in my own eyes. Instead of saying, God, you're God. I trust your goodness in a bad situation, so I'll do what you want me to do. Aren't you glad that Jesus trusts the Father? Because if he doesn't trust the Father, you and I aren't here today. But he trusted the Father. Why? Because the Father's trustworthy. Because he loves us more than we understand, more than we can even know in our own lives. And there's a final thing is this. The foundation of obedience. The Bible talks about what, how do we build this foundation of obedience. And I want to read a passage that I, this is now going on. This is the third week in a row that I'm going to read this passage. And it's the one passage that people don't want me to read because it's not very fun. It's the one I've had the most dialogue with people over the last few weeks. It's Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 27. It's where Jesus tells a story about building your house on the rock, which is obedience to him, or on sand, which is basically ignoring his words. So let me read this passage again. Yes, you're going to have to endure it one more time. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what Jesus is saying here and why is this so important for us in this building a foundation of obedience. Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, there it is again, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a man who built his house on the rock, or does do them will be his man, man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then verse 26 it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So let me just mention a couple things as why this passage is so important. One of the things that's always important when you're reading the Bible is to find out what the context is. This section of verses comes at the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the most pointed teaching that Jesus ever did on the face of the earth when he was walking. So Matthew 5 to 7, this is the Sermon on the Mount, really challenging teaching. He gets to the end of it after he finishes saying all these important things that are really hard, and he says, if you're going to do what I say, you'll build your house on a rock. If you ignore what I said, you're going you're gonna to build your house on sand. Now, this is a really important analogy that Jesus uses that we just kind of pass by and we sing, you know, little Sunday school songs about it and building, you know, no, no offense to Sunday school songs, but they miss the point. Because when Jesus shares this story, there is one common denominator between someone who builds on sand and someone who builds on rock. Do you pick what it is? Storms. They both have storms. It's not as though you obey God and he puts this protective bubble around you. Oh, everything's great. I never have to face any trials or storms or struggles. No, the same storms that are acting up for this person on the sand is the same storms that the person on the rock has to deal with. The difference is the outcome. What happens to the person whose house is built on the rock, obedience to Jesus. The storm pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds, and what happens? The house doesn't fall. But the person whose house is on the sand, what happens to them? The storm comes, and they're done. Their house is destroyed. What is going on here? There's something really important that you and I need to understand about what Jesus is saying. Storms are consistent for all of humanity, but the reason behind them may be different. So what happens when somebody builds their house on the sand and a storm comes and destroys their house? Now, for a moment, as human beings, we have compassion. But the first thing that we go to is, why did this happen? Well, we know why it happened. Because they built their house on sand, right? So then we start to think like, well, you kind of got what you deserved, right? So you're like, there's a reason why the storm destroyed your house because you didn't take the time to dig down to bedrock to found your house on rock. You just quickly did a quick thing, built your house on sand, and now you're done. So you're really kind of getting what you deserve. What is that called? It's called consequence. And there are consequences for doing things that you shouldn't do. And they happen all the time. And God will use consequences in our life, but consequences are, are nothing that I think that God orchestrates. Consequences are just the result of our bad decisions of doing things that are right in our own eyes and ignoring God's, God, what God wants. So there's consequences. But they almost seem random, and they almost seem as though they don't have meaning to them. Now let's flip the other side. The person who builds their house on the rock, they still have storms. So what's going on in those storms? One of the things that's true, especially when you read through the New Testament, you will find... Following Jesus includes suffering. It includes pain. It includes struggles. But when you read through the New Testament, you realize there's a reason behind them. That's why James says in his first chapter of his book, says this, count it all joy. You're like, jeez, James, what are you thinking, man? <laughs> what? When you face trials, when you go through pain, when life is hard, like, oh yeah, joy is the first thing I feel. No, it's frustration and anger and 
No. Why does he say that? Because he goes on to say that if you have those in your life and you're a follower of Jesus, it is the process God is using to perfect your faith. God is doing something deep in you as a part of the storm that he's throwing at you, right? The house is built on the rock, therefore the storm comes, but it doesn't get shaken. It gets proven to be on the rock, and that's the truth. So here's the reality. If we walk outside of what God wants for our life, we may experience pain and suffering and loss and difficulties, but those are the consequence of our sin and our brokenness and our failure. But if we're walking with Jesus and we still are experiencing difficulties and struggles, the good news is it's happening for a reason. I would rather live a life that strives to be obedient to Jesus so that I have an answer for my suffering as opposed to living out a consequence for what I did that I have no hope of getting beyond. And that's the hopelessness of living apart from Jesus. You are left with what you've created, and there is no hope beyond it apart from Jesus and the truth of the gospel saving your soul and then him being now the Lord of your life. That's why we use the term Lord, the one who's the authority and calls the shots for your life. So I say all this because this is the foundation for, for this whole series. If we don't get this reality that God wants us to obey because he loves us and knows what's best, then everything we talk about from here on out, there'll either be confusion or pushback. Because we'll question, we'll do again what Eve questioned. Oh, God, I don't know. I think I might know better. But in reality, God knows what's best. So we're going to head towards conclusion in a moment. The worship team, I'm going to ask them to come join me. We're going we're gonna to sing a couple more songs, but we're going to go to a time of communion. And, and I'll give some context for what we're going to do with communion because there's, there's two things before we, we get to communion that I want us to understand that, that I'm going to ask you to do similar to what Mr. Miyagi did with Daniel. You're not making a commitment to me. I want you to make a commitment to God about this series and then beyond this series. Two things, okay? Two things that if you'll make a commitment to now, they will change the way you understand what we, what we draw from the scriptures and what we're learning from God and how that shapes our lives. The first one is this. The commitment you and I will make is that you will commit, we will commit to listen to Jesus to determine good from evil for us and not ourselves. That we will submit to him and say, okay, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that we will choose to obey God, obey the words of Jesus, obey the scriptures, obey what the gospel shapes in our life without compromise and without edit. I make a commitment. I know I'm not going to be the only person. The three other people who are going to be teaching in this series, and I know all of us will make the same commitment. We're not going to give our opinion. We're going to try to go right to the scriptures and say, okay, what does God say about this? At the end of the day, if you disagree with it, you need to go back to this. The standard that we talked about last week, the Bible, that what God, what God says, for you personally to say, okay, I need to know to make sure what God says because I want to obey that. But I don't want to change it. I don't want to compromise it. I don't want to edit it. I want it to be what Jesus said. I don't want to move the boundaries. I don't want to recreate boundaries. I want to submit to the context that God created live in. So with that in mind, that that commitment, I want us to go to a time of communion because this is so important for us to, again, start a foundation for the whole series. Here's the good news. If you're like, this has been a real bummer of a message, Pastor John, thank you for your gift of encouragement today. Here's the good news. God loves us enough that he knows that we are broken and we are human, and even in our best moments, we're still gonna blow it. And if you're thinking, wow, if obedience is the context for the relationship, that I am, I am hopeless, 
because I blow it every day. So what am I going to do? God has made provision through Jesus' death on the cross that when I blow it, I don't lose relationship with God anymore. I don't get pushed away. I don't get separated. Why? Because Jesus' death pays for my sin that keeps me disconnected from God. And now that that's taken care of, every time I blow it in my striving to either do what's right or even my full-on rejection of God, if I turn back to Him, there is always, always enough grace from God to save my soul and forgive me. So in the next few moments, we're going to come to the tables. There's four in the room. That one, that one in particular, if you have a gluten allergy, there's gluten-free there that's available to you. But as we come to the table, listen, I want you to take the elements as you get back to your seat. There's two things that will happen. God will remind us of the areas of brokenness where we've said, in my own, in my, my own wisdom, and my own discernment, I'm going to do this. And God's going to say, you can keep trying that, but you're going to keep failing. That you would bring that to God and say, Jesus, I offer my sin and brokenness and I ask for your forgiveness. That's what the cross does for us. But then the other side is this, is that as we go into this series and we go into the next moment and the next day and the next week and the next month and all those things that you realize God has made a way for you to even though you stumble, you will not fall. And that's the cross. See, the person who was built on the sand, the house fell and great was the fall. But for those who follow Jesus and choose to give their life to him, even in, the, even in the failure, there's not falling. Even in the mistake, there's not destruction. Even in the greatest moments of weakness and brokenness, there's hope for us. And that's the good news that God wants us to be with him so much that he made a way for people who are sinners to still be saved and be in relationship with him. So when you take those elements, be reminded of how good God is. He says you're supposed to be distinctly different, but when you're not, I'll make up for it. I'll cover your sin. I'll cover your brokenness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you were willing to submit yourself to the will of the Father in obedience. And because of that, you did the most amazing thing for us that answered to the sin for all people for all time that you gave your life for us so that all the times where we've attempted to be our own God, where we've attempted to do what we think is best for us only to find ourselves in failure, that you made a way for us to recover from that because you took it on yourself. You took our sin and you paid for it. You removed it so that our sin as far as the east is from the west, that we are washed white as snow, because Jesus, what you've done for us. And so Jesus, as we come to remember what you did for us, that you died for us, that you paid for our sin, that as we are reminded of that, would you allow us to walk in forgiveness? Walk in the freedom that you give to us. Lay down our sin every moment that we fail, knowing that we are unconditionally loved by you and by the Father, and that we can live this thing out called Christianity, that we can follow you even though we fail. So Jesus, give us the courage today to offer our sin. Give us the courage today to walk free. Give us the courage today to live a life of obedience in you. We thank you, Jesus.